The title of today's message is Your Ultimate Destiny, Part 5. Pretty original, huh? Because this is the last part of this series. Amen. Amen. Oh. So, on to your ultimate destiny. One more thing before I begin. Eschatology is the study of end times. And you won't hear that word in the message today. But really, this message, along with the first four parts, is all about eschatology and the end times. You might say this message is more about the end of times. And it's probably going to be a little different than what you've heard about end times before. Today we're going to go over material and I'm just going to reference some things that I've taught on in the first four parts. So if I say something that you don't perhaps understand. I mean, you could talk to me later or just go back and listen to those first four messages because everything is coming together in this last message. In your ultimate destiny, part four, we spent some time talking about heaven. Specifically about our ideas and perceptions of what heaven is like. And also where those ideas and perceptions came from. We talked about the teaching of the great Athenian philosopher Plato, who was born four centuries before Christ. And we talked about the powerful influence of the poet Dante, who lived and wrote the Divine Comedy 1,300 years after the birth of Christ. And we talked about that his fanciful picture of hell, purgatory, and heaven impacted and influenced Christian art and literature for many years, and even up to the present time. Both these men believed that heaven, in whatever form it might be, was our ultimate destination. How deep their influence runs yet today is, of course, open to debate, but the fact that they and their written works are still well-known and highly respected should tell us something especially when you see the similarities between their views on heaven and the afterlife and what is taught or written or simply assumed within Christianity today. We also talked about what the Bible has to say about heaven. After all, the Bible needs to be our final authority on all such matters and not the writings of Plato and Dante. Amen? And we spent a lot of time throughout this series talking about the importance of context as we study and interpret those scriptures. Otherwise, it becomes all too easy to pull scriptures out of their actual context in order to get them to say what we want them to say rather than what they actually do say, or in other words, what the author of those scriptures was actually trying to teach to his listeners. And when we look at the scriptures about heaven within their context, without bringing any assumptions or our preconceived ideas about heaven into the picture, we find that the Bible has very little, if anything, to say about our going to heaven when we die. At least the heaven of our imaginations. 
and that this heaven is the place where we will spend eternity. So what is our eternal destination? And what is our ultimate destiny? To answer those questions today, I will enter into a dialogue with premillennial dispensationalists and specifically their doctrine of the rapture by looking at a couple of passages in the New Testament that they use to support their position on the end times and specifically that belief that all true Christians will supernaturally be removed from the earth by God before, in their view, of course, the great tribulation begins. In my opinion, it's important to challenge this teaching for two reasons. One, it's simply a wrong doctrine. And two, it completely hides and distorts what these passages are actually teaching, which is indeed about our ultimate destiny. We will begin in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Has anybody heard this scripture passage being used to teach the rapture? But let's begin our discussion of these scriptures by putting them in their proper context. We need to remember that the Apostle Paul is writing to the first century church in Thessalonica, who just like the seven churches of the book of Revelation, were undergoing tremendous persecution. Paul makes this clear when he writes in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 4. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials that you are enduring. And because of this persecution, it seems very likely that many of their members had already been put to death. And in that light, it seems obvious that Paul is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 writing words of encouragement and comfort and hope to this church. As we keep this context in mind, we would also see and understand that Paul is not writing to this church about a secret rapture that would happen over 2,000 years in the future. For Paul knew nothing about a teaching called the rapture. Why? Was Paul simply ignorant of this doctrine? No, of course not. He didn't know about it because it hadn't been invented yet. That didn't happen until 1830 with the teaching of John Nelson Darby. And even then, his position on the rapture didn't become widely known until the publishing 
of the Schofield Study Bible in 1909. This is when premillennial dispensations popularity began to skyrocket and the raptured doctrine turned into the influential force that it is still today. Cyrus Schofield's notes on the book of Revelation are still a major source for the various timetables, judgments, and plagues that have been elaborated on by current Christian authors such as Tim LaHaye and Hal Lindsey. That last statement comes directly from Wikipedia. Before we return to 1 Thessalonians, I want to share with you some comments made by leaders within the premillennial dispensation camp about the scriptural foundation for their doctrine on the rapture. Henry Allen Ironside was a popular Bible teacher and author of more than 100 publications. He also pastored Moody Bible Church in Chicago from 1929 to 1948. Ironside wrote this in his book, Mysteries of God, about the rapture doctrine. It is scarcely to be found in a single book or sermon through the period of 1,600 years. If any doubt this statement, let them search. The remarks of the so-called fathers, both pre- and post-Nicene, the theological treatises of the scholastic divines, Roman Catholic writers of all shades of thought, the literature of the Reformation, the sermons and expositions of the Puritans, and the general theological works of the day. He will find the mystery, the rapture, conspicuous by its absence. End of quote. Tim LaHaye, author of the highly popular book series Left Behind, wrote this in his book, No Fear of the Storm. One objection to the pre-tribulation rapture is that no one passage of Scripture teaches the two aspects of his second coming separated by the tribulation. This is true. But then no one passage teaches a post-trib or a mid-trib rapture. End of quote. And finally, Thomas Ice wrote that in his work, The Origin of the Pre-Trib Rapture, Part 2, since neither pre- nor post-tribbers have a proof text for the time of the rapture, then it is clear that this issue is a product of deduction from one's overall system of theology. End of quote. You have to admit these are amazing admissions from the very pillars and defenders of premillennial dispensation. Admitting there is no scriptural foundation, no proof text from the Bible to support their position. There is very little that I can add to all that except to try to answer the question of how did such a non-biblical doctrine become so popular even up to the present time? We can only speculate, but I agree with the comments of Dr. Jonathan Welton in his book Rapturalist when he writes, It, the rapture, then became deeply ingrained in Western thinking simply because it would be much nicer to be raptured than to live through another World War I, a Great Depression, or another World War II. The rapture fever spread not because it is biblical, because it was enticing to those who desired an escape to the trauma of the early 1900s. End of quote. So again, the rapture seems to be an idea 
a theory that gained its popularity because an influential editor of a Bible endorsed it through his notes in that Bible. And it became a doctrine of many within the church simply because the many liked it and wanted it to be true. They then took this idea and imposed it on scriptures like 1 Thessalonians 4 in order to make it say what they wanted it to say and already believed. And in that process, ignoring completely the way this passage had been interpreted and taught for 1,800 years. And we will indeed return to 1 Thessalonians in a moment. But first, let's look at another scripture that many use as one that teaches the rapture. Matthew chapter 24 and verses 40 and 41. These verses are still part of the Olivet Discourse in which Jesus was prophesying about the destruction of Jerusalem and a war by the Romans against the Jews that would last for three and a half years. A prophecy that Jesus also said would be fulfilled within a generation. Here is that passage. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two men will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and the other left. A future rapture teaching by Jesus? Hardly. Keeping in mind the context of this passage, Jesus was talking about the soon-to-come Roman army and their bloody and indiscriminate killing of Jews on their march to and their encampment around Jerusalem. And there are other passages that are used to promote the rapture theory, but in all cases, they are simply imposing their view onto the scriptures without using sound biblical exegesis. In other words, if you studied any of these scriptures with an open mind, without any preconceived ideas, you would never come to the conclusion that the authors were speaking of a far-off, into-the-future rapture of the church. So now let's return to 1 Thessalonians and see if we can determine what Paul is really talking about. We start with verse 13. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. Again, remember the context. Paul is writing words of encouragement and comfort to a first century church, which is undergoing persecution, where a number of their friends and loved ones have recently died, and he is not writing to us some 2,000 years out into the future. Verse 14, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. The Greek word for even so that is used here is also translated in other places in the New Testament as likewise or in the same manner. What Paul is doing here is making a direct comparison between Jesus' resurrection and to those who have died as members of Christ's body, the church. Verse 15, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who have fallen asleep. Now Paul is speaking explicitly of what he only referred to in the previous verse. The time he is speaking of is what is commonly referred to as the second coming of Christ. That glorious time that we are all so looking forward to. Amen? 
Paul also tells us here that those who sleep in Christ are not only not forgotten, but that whatever is about to happen, it will happen to them first. And to what is he referring? Let's see. Verse 16. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. The word rise here is from the Greek word anastami, and it means to stand or to make to stand. In the context of this passage, it means to physically rise again. And for the dead in Christ, it means only one thing, resurrection. Yes, the blessed hope for all Christians since the time of Christ. One that has taken a back seat or has been completely forgotten about in Western Christianity ever since the popularization of the rapture theory. But also since the mindset of going to heaven when you die became entrenched in our thinking. When all of our fanciful perceptions of heaven came to be accepted as fact. Including the one that heaven is our final destination and our ultimate destiny. But that is not what the Word of God teaches here and elsewhere. It does teach here and elsewhere that resurrection is our hope, our final state of being. And now we are at the crux of knowing our ultimate destiny, that to which we have been pointing to since the start of this series of messages. But first, let's finish up with our present passage. Verse 17. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Praise God, what a blessed hope. Those alive will get caught up in the sense of getting a body just like those who have just been resurrected. And the glorious truth from that moment on, we will forever be with Jesus in that state. Come Lord Jesus! And now we come to the final verse of this amazing and powerful passage of Scripture. Verse 18, in which Paul writes, Therefore, comfort one another with these words. The word for comfort here is also translated in other places as encourage. So here again we see the context of this passage quite explicitly. Paul is writing to the first century Christians in Thessalonica to comfort and to encourage them with the amazing truth about their ultimate future, destiny, and destination. To tell them that their loved ones, their family, their friends who have died will not remain dead. They are not forever lost and separated from them. But to tell them and us that resurrection is coming. A resurrection just like Jesus's with a completely transformed physical body. One that will never wear down or die, but one that will be filled with wholeness and strength. One with no weakness, but rather filled with resurrection, life, and power. And then those who are still alive will have their own physical bodies transformed in the exact same way. And so then we will be bodily reunited with all of our loved ones, never to be separated again. Now is it possible, after our death and we have gone to heaven for our period of rest, that we will meet up with those who have gone before us? Yes, I believe it's possible, maybe even likely. 
But here, Paul is completely focused on our physical resurrection and what that means for us. And he says that it also means from that point forward, we will forevermore be in the very presence of the Lord. Not just spiritually either, but with that transformed physical body that will allow us to physically see and touch Him, to eat meals with Him, and whatever else God might have in mind. How this differs from being in His presence immediately after our death, I do not know. But again, the apostle here puts great emphasis on it because of our resurrection. And this is how Paul is encouraging the Thessalonians as well as exhorting them to encourage one another in the midst of all the persecution that they are enduring. He is talking about resurrection for all who fall asleep in Christ as their hope. That death does not have the final word in our lives, but that Christ does. And His word is life. Can I get an amen? It's eternal life in our transformed physical bodies. As I hope is obvious by now, Paul is not here or elsewhere ever talking about a secret rapture of the church over 2,000 years in the future. But of the guarantee of our amazing and incomprehensible future and our ultimate destiny. Physical resurrection. But there's even more to it than that. But first, let's take a final look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17, along with a few brief comments. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Amen. Since this is perhaps the favorite verse for those who promote the rapture theory, let's look to see if we can determine what the Apostle Paul is really saying. The Greek word for air in this verse is air. It is used seven times in the New Testament, and it signifies our atmosphere, as in the air we breathe and the space where the birds fly. And so the word implies a space very close to the earth itself. The Greek word for clouds is nephele, which, as would be expected, refers to the physical clouds we see. Its root word is also used metaphorically, as in Hebrews 12.1, where it says that we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. However it is used, it also refers to something that is not far from the earth itself. The Greek word for meat here is a pantesis. It is used several times in the New Testament, and refers to a friendly encounter. Quoting directly from Strong's Greek Dictionary of the New Testament, it seems that the special idea of the word was the official welcome of a newly arrived dignitary. Finally, the Greek word for caught is harpazo, and it means to seize, and it conveys the idea of force suddenly exercised. We see one example of this in Acts chapter 8, Verse 39. Philip had met the Ethiopian eunuch, and after baptizing him, we read this. Now when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away, so that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. In Philip's case, this was God moving him instantly to another location. In the verse we are presently discussing, 
It is God bringing us in our newly transformed, resurrected bodies to welcome our King Jesus as he physically returns to earth. Note that this welcoming event takes place very near to the earth and occurs right after the resurrection of the dead. It says nothing. It doesn't even imply that Jesus is taking all of us off to heaven to live with him there, as the rapture doctrine teaches. This is resurrection time, not rapture time. And this is the way all, all commentators for the first 1,800 years of the church have interpreted and taught these scriptures. And of course, this is not the only place in his writings that Paul describes and looks forward to that glorious day. In 1 Corinthians, Paul also writes about resurrection. In fact, the whole chapter is devoted to resurrection. And there is so much here that we could and should discuss, but for the purposes today, we will only look at the verses that relate to our glorious resurrection body. Let's start with 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 42. Now in verse 40, Paul began to talk about the differing glories in the differing bodies that were in the heavens and those that were on the earth. And then he tells us, so also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. You would agree, a powerful and amazing description of what we all have to look forward to. But before we leave this passage, let's look at this last verse, which may raise a question or two, as Paul here uses the term spiritual body. What does he mean by this? Is he implying that our resurrected bodies will be purely spiritual, as in the case with angels? To answer those questions, we must as always first keep in mind the context of this passage. Paul is obviously here talking about our physical body, the one that is buried upon death. This is what that whole passage is all about. So what does Paul mean saying that our resurrected physical bodies are spiritual? We will find the answer in the Greek language. The Greek word translated spiritual here is pneumatikos. It is used 26 times in the New Testament, and it is always translated as spiritual. According to Vine's Dictionary of Greek Words, and I quote, All that is produced and manifested among men by the operations of the Spirit of God is spiritual. The spiritual man is one who walks by the Spirit. End of quote. Vines also says this word connotes the idea of invisibility and power. The first century historian and Greek scholar N.T. Wright agrees and adds this nugget about the Greek language. He writes in his book, Surprised by Hope, that Greek adjectives ending in I-K-O-S, such as pneumatikos, it describes not the material out of which things were made, but the power or the energy that animates them. So Paul is here talking about the difference between the body we now have 
which is powered by the normal human life force, which is powerless against illness, injury, decay, and death. And our future transformed physical body that is powered by God's pneuma, his breath of life, his spirit. To put it another way, our resurrection body will still be one of flesh, a changed flesh, a flesh designed by God himself and one that is powered by the Holy Spirit. We no longer will need a heart constantly pumping blood through our bodies to sustain us. But we will have the very life of God within us to sustain us for all eternity. This can be hard for us to fathom, I know, but this is what the Word of God tells us. Remember how after Jesus was resurrected, he met with his disciples that same evening? This is Luke's version of that meeting. We find it in Luke chapter 24, verses 36 through 39. Now as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were terrified and frightened and supposed they had seen his spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. The passage then continues on and tells us that Jesus ate some fish and honeycomb as further proof that he still possessed a physical body. And yet a physical body that was wonderfully transformed to where he could appear at will within their midst in a locked room. A transformed physical body. And yet one that seemingly had no barriers. And this is our ultimate destiny. For this is what we are told in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. That is just awesome. What a glorious future we have in front of us. And you have God's word on that. Now what will it be like? There's no way of fully knowing, but here is more truth from God's Word. Romans chapter 8, verse 18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, and Paul definitely had more than his share of sufferings, probably much more than any of us have ever endured, but they are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. Brothers and sisters, resurrection is what we have to look forward to, not rapture. It was the Apostle Paul's hope, for this is what he wrote in Romans 8, verses 23 to 25. Not only that, but we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope. But hope that is seen is not hope, for why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. And do we realize even now that we have resurrection life in us? That's what this verse is telling us, that we now possess the first fruits of the Spirit, and one day, resurrection day, that life will fully manifest in us. For us and for all the world to behold. Yes, resurrection was the Apostle Paul's hope. 
and it should be, needs to be our hope as well. Resurrection was also the hope for many of the Jewish people leading up to and including the time of Jesus. We all know about the Pharisees. They were a very influential religious sect at that time. They believed in the resurrection of the dead. And this belief, this teaching filtered down to what we might call the common Jew. We see this brought out in the Gospel of John, chapter 11, verses 23 and 24. This is when Jesus has arrived near the tomb of Lazarus, and one of the sisters, Martha, has come out to meet Jesus. To encourage and comfort her in her grief, Jesus tells her, Your brother will rise again. Now listen to Martha's response. I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Notice that resurrection was Martha's hope for seeing her brother again. And not that when she died and went to heaven, she would meet him. Again, the issue here is not whether or not that happens immediately after death. The issue at hand is our ultimate destiny, which is resurrection. Again, going to heaven when you die was a concept foreign to the Jewish people. For as a nation, they were waiting for the kingdom of God to arrive, and that those who died in that hope would be resurrected to live again at the onset of God's new age, or as it is referred to in the Bible, the age to come, when God himself would be king, Israel would be vindicated and reestablished to her former glory as a great and mighty nation above all other nations. One example of this was Jesus' response to Martha in the passage we just discussed. John 11.25 says this, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall never die. Though he die, he shall live. Or as the interlinear Bible translates this last line, and everyone living and believing in me shall in no way die forever. There is our ultimate hope. And it comes directly from the heart of Jesus. It's resurrection. And to be perfectly clear, the word resurrection, whether in its own definition or its use in the New Testament or even its use in secular writings, the word always, always, always meant bodily resurrection. So with all that we have discussed so far in this message, as well in all the previous messages in this series, how would we now describe life after death? To oversimplify, after our physical death, our soul, spirit, goes into the presence of God for an extended period of what Scripture has described simply as rest. You might call it, in a sense, a period of inactivity compared to what is to follow. This rest seems to include communication with God as well as the worship of Him. Paul says it will be at a time when we will be with Christ, which is far better than our present life. You can find that statement in Philippians chapter 1, verse 23. This is what we could call our immediate life after death. And that is pretty much all the Word of God has to say about that time and sometime off in the future, a time only God knows. 
Jesus Christ will make His glorious return to the earth and will bring with Him resurrection. The resurrection of the dead and the transformation of the bodies of those still alive. This begins our new life. Resurrection life. Or as N.T. Wright calls it, life after life after death. I wholeheartedly agree with that description and for the purpose of these messages, I have called it our ultimate destiny. Of course, the next question that follows is, what will this be like? Again, we can only begin to imagine what God has in store for those who love him. But we do know from the word of God that it will be life in a physical body, but a completely transformed body, one no longer subject to disease, decay, injury, or death a body empowered by the very life of God himself pulsating through it. It will be a time of wonderful reunions with our family and loved ones. Reunions with parents, children, siblings, friends, and relatives who departed from us too soon, whether by accident or disease, whether in great pain or weakness, whether in loss of mind or just old age, but now more fully alive than they have ever been or have ever even imagined. Now risen, fully, completely restored, and never to be separated from us again. Even more, it will be a time to meet and converse with Christians who lived long before us, who we've looked up to and admired from afar for their service and dedication and their love for the Lord. And who knows, they might feel and express the same things to you for how you have lived out your life in the here and now. Even more, it will be a time of being in the very presence of God himself. Imagine being in the very presence of love himself, of grace himself. And yet there's more. For all this originally will be at least life on this planet Earth. We were, after all, created with a physical body so that we could live on a physical earth. We will be resurrected with a transformed physical body so we can continue to live on the same earth. Again, this earth, our world, is part of God's good creation. It will not be destroyed by God or man. In fact, just the opposite will begin to happen at the return of Christ and the resurrection of the dead. Listen to what Paul says will also happen at that time. Romans 8, verses 19 through 22, and this is from the Message Bible. That's why I don't think there's any comparison between the present hard times and the coming good times. The created world itself can hardly wait for what's coming next. Everything in creation is being more or less held back. God reigns it in until both creation and all the creatures are ready and can be released at the same moment into the glorious times ahead. Meanwhile, the joyful anticipation deepens. All around us, we observe a pregnant creation. The difficult times of pain throughout the world are simply birth pangs. Verse 21 in the New King James Version says it this way, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. And Revelation 21.5 tells us this, 
Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. Yes, God's good creation will be restored, renewed, made new. It will be birthed out of the old. We will then live on the earth, where all swords will be beaten into plowshares, where the lion shall lie down with the lamb, where the ox and the bear shall graze together, and where a little child shall lead them. We will live in a place when all creation will be growing in peace with one another and with their Creator. It will also be a time when heaven and earth are actually joined together forevermore. We know this from Revelation chapter 21, verses 2-4. through Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Yes, the day is coming when heaven and earth will be one. And we will have a transformed body just like Jesus's, so that we will be home in both. We have now come to the pinnacle of this series of messages. We have now come hopefully to an understanding of our ultimate destination, a completely restored and renewed earth, as well as to an understanding of our ultimate destiny, resurrection, and all that goes with it. But yet there's even more. And I will close this message and this series of messages with this. Now that we've seen a brief but wonderful glimpse of our glorious future, perhaps our final question might be, but what will we do there? And then on into eternity. No one can say for sure, only God knows the answer to that question. And he has chosen not to reveal that to us yet. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 13 that a time is coming when he will know just as he is known. Again, that time still hasn't come for us yet, but I have some ideas about what our ultimate destiny might hold for us. And I believe God has given us some clues in his word. Let's now look to the book of Revelation once more. Chapter 22 and verses 1 through 5. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, and there shall be no more curse. But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Just one more amazing and encouraging passage about our ultimate future and destiny. Notice, first of all, that even in this glorious time, there will be nations of people that will need healing. And I'm thinking it will be both physical and spiritual healing. 
there will still be those who do not know and have not received the all-encompassing and overwhelming love of our Savior and our God. Now, who do you think might possibly have the great honor, the awesome privilege, and the amazing blessing of being able to bring that healing to them? Yes, that's right. I truly believe it will be you and me, God's servants. Verse 3 in this passage says, His servants shall serve Him. And how do we best serve our God? As has always been the case, by serving others. Remember Jesus' command to love others as I have loved you? The Greek word for love there is agape. We all know that word, but sometimes we forget what that word means. It isn't primarily about emotion or a feeling. There are other Greek words for those. Agape is primarily an action word. It's treating everybody as if they have unsurpassable worth, because they do. Jesus died for them the same as he did for you and me. And then you might even say agape is a service word. Agape manifests itself in service to others. One final example of this from the heart of Jesus we find in his powerful teaching from Matthew chapter 25 beginning in verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer them, Assuredly I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these my brethren, you did it to me. Yes, brothers and sisters, to serve others is indeed serving God. And there's more to it than even this. Now all of us have received at one time or another some wonderful gifts from others. Gifts that have blessed us, deeply touched our hearts. But now I want you to think back to a time when you were able to truly bless someone else. When you knew that you had made a real difference in their lives. For you could see it in their eyes. You could hear it in their voice or in their words. Wasn't that a far greater blessing for you than anything you might have received in the past? Of course it was. Isn't that why Jesus told us it was better to give than to receive? Isn't that why God told Abraham that he, and us of course, are blessed to be a blessing? So now we have hopefully come to a place where we can understand why our current perception of heaven may need to be expanded. To realize that God does indeed have something far greater in store for us than that current perception. I will close with a story. One for which you will need to use your imagination. 
The story may be pure speculation, perhaps, but one that I believe is based on all that we have talked about throughout this series. A story that ties it all together and reveals even more of our ultimate destiny. I want all of you to close your eyes for a moment and imagine with the best of your imagination that the day of resurrection has come. You have already received your wonderfully transformed physical body powered by the life of God himself, full of energy and strength that you had never before even begun to imagine. Power, energy, strength that will never dissipate. All of creation is being renewed around you. You've had those glorious reunions with loved ones after loved ones. Heaven and earth have been joined together. And you have looked upon and seen the face of God. Then one day, Jesus, or perhaps the Father himself, appears to you, puts his arm around your shoulder, and then whispers your name. Now imagine that you can feel the love in his embrace and in his voice, and it's more real to you than anything you've ever experienced. And then he says to you, remember that area where you grew up? and spent most of your life? Well, there are many there who still have wrong ideas about me. So many who don't know how much I love them and how much they mean to me. They need healing. Will you go to them for me? Will you make me known to them? Then as the tears well up in your eyes, you look into your God's, your Savior's loving eyes, and you reply in humble gratitude and thanksgiving, Yes, Lord. Thank you, Lord. And off you go to bring healing to those who are so in need. And you know you will be successful because you've been prepared for it, both from your life well lived on this earth now, perhaps from your time of rest in heaven within the very presence of God as you awaited your resurrection. So there, in the briefest of glimpses, is a picture of our ultimate destiny. Can you imagine anything greater? Anything more fulfilling? And it's only the beginning. Did you grasp that vision? Hold on to it. Live for it, for it is your future, your destiny. Nothing can stop it from coming to pass. Live your life now in anticipation of it. Be who you were created to be, the image of God out into this world. And in doing this, remember always the words of St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Paul is telling us that no good work of ours, whether yesterday, today, or tomorrow, no matter how big or how small, will ever be for naught. God will indeed use it as only he can to prepare you and the world for your ultimate destiny. May we all live now in full anticipation of that glorious time. Amen? Amen.